Hello, everybody, and welcome to All My Movies here on its new home on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Movies. If you haven't seen the show before, I take a movie off my shelf every single week. I break down the stories behind it, what went into the production of it, also my experience with the movie. Where does it occupy the space in my life? What are my memories about this movie? And this week we're talking about, for me, a keystone movie in my movie-going experience, in my movie-going life, and that is James Cameron's 1997 Titanic, which shattered every box office record domestic and worldwide until it was passed by another James Cameron movie, Avatar, back in 2010. This is a movie that I think is going to be very interesting to talk about and break down because some movies cross generations, and I think Titanic to an extent does, but I also think that Titanic is a movie that is very important, particularly to my generation and people that were around my age when it came out because it, it, it does mean so many different things to so many different people. But to a young movie fan, and I was 14 years old, almost 15 when this movie came out, this was such an important fi film as far as showing me what the possibilities of movies were and really a glimpse into the future. So we're going to get into that and all of my memories around Titanic, the ways that it's impacted my life here and there. Before we do that, though, I want to thank you for watching us if you're watching us on YouTube. As I mentioned, we're now on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Movies. If you're listening to the podcast and you want to see the video, we're no longer on the Schmodon Entertainment Network. We're now on this channel. But if you're watching us and you want to become an audio subscriber, and we'd love for you to join us there as well, you can find all of that information down below. Below in the description. As I mentioned in the opening of the show, Titanic is one of the most successful films in movie history. At one time, it held the record as the highest grossing domestic and worldwide film of all time. It also still holds the record for most Academy Award nominations. It's actually tied with All About Eve and La La Land for that record. And it holds the record, along with The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, and Ben-Hur, for most Academy Awards won with 11. Writer-director James Cameron's journey to making Titanic actually began when he was very young. He'd always been interested in undersea exploration, and it first manifested itself on film, not in Titanic, but in the movie The Abyss, which is kind of an odd duck out when you look at James Cameron's filmography. It wasn't a massive box office success, but it was a very personal film for James Cameron. The Abyss was released just a few years after the wreck of the Titanic was discovered in the Atlantic after decades of searching and a lot of fruitless efforts to try to figure out where its final resting place was. And James Cameron's obsession with the wreck peaked as more information came out, and even as documentaries about the wreck came out, including IMAX's film Titanica. Following that film, James Cameron decided that he wanted to dive the Titanic wreck, and in order to do that, he just decided to make a movie. I wanted to dive the wreck more than I wanted to make the movie. Diving the wreck was my way into the story. In order to fund this expedition, James Cameron pitched doing a movie to Fox. And this may be one of the shortest movie pitches in cinema history because using the art of Ken Marshall, who has made a career out of vividly depicting the life and the death of the Titanic, James Cameron had a very simple idea for what his movie version of the story would be. The movie was pitched using his paintings. I just opened up the, the big double truck spread of his glorious painting of the ship going down with its lights blazing and the, the rockets being fired off, showed it to the studio executives and said, this ship, Romeo and Juliet. Ken Marshall would go on to be an advisor on Titanic, and just as an aside, following the release of the film, I really got obsessed with reading more about it, and there was a book called Titanic and Illustrated History, which is full of not only a lot of Ken Marshall's great paintings and illustrations and art, etc., but a great history from historian Don Lynch. If you can find that book, it is a really, really great resource for, the, for what actually happened to the Titanic. I was doing some research, it looks like, on Amazon that if you can't find it, there's an updated version of the book that's going to be coming out later this year. But if you're interested in Titanic or if you watch the movie based off of this show and decide to learn more, Titanic and Illustrated History is a great resource. After Cameron's pitch at Fox, the movie was eventually greenlit along with Paramount Pictures. The two studios would co-finance the film. And in 1995, James Cameron made his first dive down to the wreck of the Titanic, not just to explore, but also to film. A lot of the shots that he got during these runs down to the wreck ended up in the final movie. And for James Cameron, this was a make or break moment, basically committing him to making this movie. I told him, you know, this, this, 
expedition commits me to you to make this movie. So in a way, uh, you know, I kind of sold it to them as like a cheap way to do a pay or play deal. With footage of the real Titanic in the can, James Cameron then turned his eye toward writing and producing the actual movie that had to be built around it. And to help him with that, Fox executive John Landau came on board as a producing partner with Cameron. Landau and Cameron shared a philosophy of old-fashioned filmmaking, basically making Titanic in a very practical way, in a very old-fashioned and yet epic way, and in a manner that was really disappearing from a lot of the movies that were being released and certainly have been released since Titanic was made. This could be one of the last times where Hollywood makes an old-fashioned film. It was this classic cross-class love story where you can build sets that are 900 feet, where you could bring out a thousand extras and dress them in wardrobe, and all of those challenges that came along with that. And that really excited me. Based off of his original pitch, James Cameron knew that the actors he chose to play Jack Dawson, a penniless artist, and Rose DeWitt Bucator, a socialite trapped in her gilded cage, would be key to the success of the film at the box office, and really creatively. Kate Winslet, who was fresh off of a breakout role in director Peter Jackson's Heavenly Creatures, lobbied James Cameron very hard to get the role of Rose, and did a lot of different screen tests against a lot of other potential Jack Dawsons. As a matter of fact, this is a little peek into a pocket universe where Leonardo DiCaprio was not cast. This is one of Kate Winslet's screen tests against actor Jeremy Sisto playing the role of Jack. Just out of curiosity, do you have a name? Rose. Rose. Rose DeWitt Bicator. <laughs> I may have to get you to write that down. Winslet found instant chemistry with a co-star who just a few years previously had been nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for his role in What's Eating Gilbert Grape. That actor's name was Leonardo DiCaprio. And after their audition, Kate Winslet advocated for DiCaprio to get the role, even if she was not going to play Rose in the movie. And I was sure of Leo when I saw him read with Kate for five minutes. He snapped into character, he became Jack for five minutes, and then he step back to being Leo. And after Leo left, Kate said to Jim, even if you don't hire me, you have to hire him. I know this sounds insane given how important this movie was to his career, but Leonardo DiCaprio was actually kind of a hard sell coming on board Titanic. And it wasn't necessarily due to the idea of doing a Titanic movie. He just didn't want to be in a shallow, soulless, lifeless Hollywood blockbuster. And when you see the size of the project that James Cameron was developing, you can see how easy it would be for him to jump to that conclusion. Luckily, once he read the script, he realized there was more to it than just spectacle. I don't really like sort of these gigantic, uh, huge films for some reason. They seem to be a lot more about the special effects and less about actually a story with content, you know. Um, but I didn't want to discriminate against this movie just because it was huge, because it was a terrific script, you know. It was a great character and an overall, you know, overall it had a lot of important things uh, in a movie. Leonardo DiCaprio's decision to star in Titanic was fate-altering for a couple of different reasons. Obviously, it was huge for his career, but I think it was pretty big for Titanic as well because there was already a perfect storm brewing for this movie's success. And one element of it was the fact that while he was filming his role as Jack Dawson, Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet came out in 1996 and really elevated Leonardo DiCaprio, made him a big teen star, very appealing to a young teenage audience, and that was a massive factor in the later success of Titanic. Definitely not anything that James Cameron could have planned for. He was casting him based on his acting chops, but this was one of those little things. Sometimes we talk about a perfect storm for a movie to either succeed or fail. Titanic hit a perfect storm of success, and Leonardo DiCaprio was a big part of that storm. The third lead of Titanic, if we're being honest with ourselves, is probably the boat, maybe the iceberg, but I want to talk for just a second about Billy Zane. Billy Zane plays Cal Hockley, who's Rose's fiance, and every time I watch this movie, I kind of sit in awe at the fact that I can't think of another performance, especially not in a movie of this size, that so carefully and yet successfully toes the line between camp and crap. What's the artist's name? Something Picasso. <laughs> Something Picasso? He won't amount to a thing. 
He won't. Trust me. Billy Zane definitely puts the arch in Arch Villain. And, uh, you know, hats off to Billy Zane and to James Cameron for trusting whatever it is that was happening on set every day. Because I can imagine in the room, you're not really sure what to make of this portrayal. He's sniveling and raging. And sometimes he's just kind of, I don't even know what. You can't really put your finger on what Billy Zane is doing in this movie. But he is committing to it 150%. You know, there's nothing I couldn't give you. There's nothing I'd deny you. If you would not deny me. This is one of the biggest indicators of what I think that John Landau and James Cameron were talking about when they said that Titanic was going to be a big film in the style that you don't see much anymore. Because I don't think that Billy Zane's performance, if it were in the movie, if it came out today... I don't know if there'd be a whole lot of fans of it. I think it would be laughed at. I think it would be roundly criticized. And to be fair, some people say that. But I don't think it would even be an option to have a portrayal of a character like this in a mainstream big-budget Hollywood movie today. I personally think that it is in the tradition of old Hollywood. Titanic at times is a movie with big, grand, operatic ambitions. Yes, the story between Jack and Rose is very small, but it works because it's in contrast to what's happening on the Titanic, which is very big. Billy Zane and the character of Cal Hockley are very big in this movie, and I think it works because I don't want, as an audience member, to be conflicted about who Rose should go with. I want a bad guy that I can boo and hiss unreservedly. And that's what Billy Zane gives us in this movie. Half the people on this ship are going to die. Not the better half. I'm on board with Billy Zane. I understand a lot of people aren't, but count me in. Titanic is also littered with great actors and supporting roles like Francis Fisher and Danny Nucci, Bernard Hill, Jonathan Hyde, Victor Garber, David Warner, and Kathy Bates, who is perfectly cast as the unsinkable Molly Brown. You like lamb, right, sweet pea? I've got a sausage. Yes, you gonna cut her meat for her too there, Cal? <laughs> the sinking of the Titanic is one of those disasters that just as a human being, it's hard to get your mind around the scope of. Not just in the sheer number of lives lost, but just in the enormity. The enormity of the ship, the enormity of the disaster, the fact that you have this unsinkable ship that goes down to the bottom of the ocean so spectacularly. It's this kind of enormous event that I think directors like James Cameron thrive on because this is where you can push the limits of cinema. And it's also where movies, which are made to be big, can really come in handy as an art form. To live up to the size of Titanic and the legend that surrounded it, James Cameron and Fox decided to build basically an almost full-scale replica of the ship. And when there was no studio that could accommodate it, they just decided to build one. They broke ground on a new facility in Mexico that would allow them to use the original blueprints of Titanic and rebuild a replica of her that was almost at a one-to-one -one scale. This would be used in conjunction with cutting-edge visual effects, etc. But when you have a ship that large that allowed you to walk around the decks, use it as a shooting set, and it was also built on mechanics that allowed James Cameron to tilt the ship forward and backward to simulate the sinking, as well as bringing in actual water on the decks. There were no half measures with Titanic. Everybody was going all in, and the scope on this thing was going to be massive. Jim writes a movie that there's no studio where he can make the film. So in Jim's world, it's like, well, then we'll build the studio. <laughs> just, okay, Jim, all right. When you watch Titanic today, I think it holds up well, not just for its time, but in general. There are a couple of wonky things here and there, particularly when they're trying to use computers to replicate full-scale human beings. We hadn't quite gotten there yet, but I would say 85 to 90% of the effects hold up really, really well. And I think one reason why is that it's not pure CG. There was a mixture of effects. Some of it's computers, some of it's models, some of it's miniatures, some of it is full-scale things like the big ship that they built out in Mexico. Everything is mixed and matched to try to create an environment that looks as real as possible. And this is a philosophy that James Cameron actively wanted to pursue in order to keep the audience from tuning Titanic out as just another computer effects driven blockbuster. One of the things I learned from Jim is the key is never do the same trick twice. 
just when you think, ah, they're doing it with motion control and a background, you change it, and now it's a real engine room, you know, with the Jeremiah O'Brien with its one-third scale engines moving around, and you cut to another shot, and, you know, it's a green screen foreground with a background of the model. I've harped on this many times before, but I really do think that a reason why so many blockbusters fall flat is that there's an over-reliance on computer effects. There are some movies and some effects houses are spreading it out amongst many effects houses that can handle 500 or more computer shots in every movie, but most of them can't. I think that Titanic and other movies that were made right around the same time, like Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy, hold up so well today because no one department ever had to carry the entire burden. It was never all on the visual effects team. You had several different departments working to make things work either on set or in post-production, but there was always an eye made towards how to do things practically or how to at least shoot things so that there wasn't an over-reliance on the computers and that everything could be as real as possible. And I think that those results bear out when you watch these movies because there's a lot of movies that were made even after Titanic that don't hold up as well because there was an over-reliance on technology and an under-delivery. I think a great example of this and just coming up with creative solutions is when you look at the sequence where the passengers are boarding the ship, when they built this full-scale Titanic replica, or just about full-scale, they only built the starboard side of the boat. So you had the full side of the ship, but the other side wasn't finished. It was all metal and wires, etc. You couldn't go shoot and move the camera around to the other side. Historically, the records showed that the Titanic didn't board from the starboard side of the ship. It boarded from the port side of the ship. And a normal director would, would probably boil this down to two options. Number one, you do it historically inaccurately and just portray things being boarded from the starboard side. Or number two, you make the ship all computer-generated imagery and models and try to do your best. James Cameron came up with an idea that I think is great, which is when he was shooting the sequence, anytime you saw letters on a sign or on somebody's shirt, he just had it printed in reverse and then flipped the film in post-production. So all of a sudden, the ship was facing the right way. It looked like you were boarding on the right side and you really didn't have to do a lot of extra work for the computer artists and for the model makers that already existed and it's these kinds of practical solutions that I think make movies like Titanic work and hold up to today's standards even things like the actors visible breath which was added largely for the finale of the film when all of the actors are in this icy cold frigid ocean water was based on real elements that were shot on stage which is why I think that the CGI breath in this movie is 10 times better than the breath that was made over a decade later for the social network, David Fincher's film, because that was fully computer-generated breath. Here we have, even with this one effect that anyone could have just said like, oh, whatever, we'll just put it in with the computer. They were basing it off of a real-life element and it looks more real. Principal photography for Titanic began in mid-1996, but the bulk of the shooting happened in the fall at the Fox lot in Baja where they had built the replica Titanic. And this shoot was massive. It involved not just the principal cast, but at many times, hundreds of extras and period accurate costumes, a massive mechanical set, complicated indoor water sequences, carefully choreographed shots for visual effects that had to be added in later, and complicated stunt sequences. In short, Titanic was a massively difficult film to make. And James Cameron, who already had kind of a reputation for being difficult himself as a director, had very little time for pleasantries. Can you hear me, Jim? They should be able to stand up and touch the bottom, and it shouldn't be really much lower than that. Thanks for your opinion. Now I'm going to make it exciting. While Cameron's often militaristic style was joked about by some members of the crew, Jim got so upset with a cast member that he turned on his freezing rays and shattered him. But that wasn't enough. He's now scattering the remains all over the forward well deck. Others didn't find it as humorous. These were long, grueling days, often in very cold water, and not everybody came out with a positive experience. One perhaps early symptom of this is an incident that happened before the main bulk of the shooting while they were shooting the Keldish sequences on the research boat, the Bill Paxton and Gloria Stewart as old Rose scenes that mainly bookend the film. 
during that shoot, there was an incident, a still unsolved incident, I might add, where somebody spiked the crew's food with the drug PCP, which led to a very interesting night and sickened almost the entire cast and crew working on Titanic. So all of a sudden, here's 150 crew members stumbling into the emergency room of a very small hospital at one o'clock in the morning. You see some people are freaking out, some people are Congo dancing, some people are, are euphoric. I, I knew I was pretty stoned on something pretty bad. While this incident may not have been directly linked to dissatisfaction amongst the crew, it did lead to what would be Titanic's biggest obstacle, and it was something it would have to face before it even hit theaters. Bad press. Titanic was an unholy combination of things that led to bad press. The biggest was the fact that the movie's budget ballooned to $200 million. That made it the most expensive movie of all time. And when you have a movie that's the most expensive movie ever made, and also about one of the biggest disasters that ever happened in real life, the headlines kind of write themselves. Adding to that, you have Cameron's reputation, you have incidents like the PCP thing in Halifax while they're shooting that part of the movie, you have the fact that you have two people starring in the movie who are largely unproven box office leads. All of those things made it very easy for media reports to link a Hollywood disaster to a maritime disaster. And according to many outlets, Titanic was all but dead in the water before it was even done filming. We were the biggest idiots in the history of Hollywood, and we were going to go down in flames like nobody had seen, and this was going to be the biggest bomb in history. And this is going on while we're trying to make the film. Journalists and pundits who had been anticipating Titanic's demise got even more fuel for their fire when the release date for the movie was pushed from summer 1997 to Christmas 1997, after all of the costly and groundbreaking visual effects ended up taking longer to realize than had originally been planned. If you watch what I do, you know that I don't usually give studio executives a lot of credit, but I do have to credit the executives at Paramount and Fox a little bit here because at no point, despite the fact that there was a mountain of bad press, a ballooning budget, did they ever actually slash the budget of the movie. And you could see where they might be tempted to cut and run here. You don't want to be the studios that produced the biggest box office disaster of all time. Those headlines never go away. And yet, Titanic was allowed to get to theaters with the effects budget intact. And I think that could have been disastrous if you have a different set of executives that sees what's going on and tells James Cameron, look, we've got to get a handle on things here. We need you to cut $30, $40 million out of this movie. I think the movie itself would have suffered. They gambled on Titanic, and everybody involved won big time. We could have said, cut $20 million out of your special effects budget. We could have done any number of things. And what... I ultimately felt, and you know, ultimately what the company felt was that our only hope was to plow full speed ahead and try and make a great movie. Despite all the drama playing out in the press, Cameron and his cast and crew gritted out a really tough shooting schedule that lasted over 150 days, oftentimes at night, oftentimes in very, very cold and uncomfortable water. Heading into 1997 with principal photography wrapped, James Cameron and his two co-editors turned their attention toward crafting and shaping the movie into a final film and also getting the effects done. The effects were led by Digital Domain, which is a company that James Cameron co-founded in 1993. And despite the fact that the studio had not cut his budget and was able to give him time and push the release date back, James Cameron was also acutely aware of the pressure that was squarely on his shoulders and approached the post-production process of Titanic as if it might be the last job that he would ever get in Hollywood. To me, the editing room was my bunker. And I said, I'm not coming out of this bunker till I have a great movie. I figured my career was over, and I'd already sort of given up my salary on this. There was no hope of making a dime, and I probably would never get to direct again. But I was going to go down swinging. After a very tumultuous road, Titanic finally hit theaters in North America on December 19th, 1997. I remember Titanic's opening weekend very well. I was part of the crowd that went to see it as soon as I could when it opened. There was a big theater in Little Rock called the Cinema 150 that had stadium seating before any theaters had stadium seating, a big screen. It was the place to go for event movies, and Titanic played at that theater for months. And I was awestruck by this movie. Watching it then and then revisiting it now, there are a couple of things that have always stood out to me. One of them is the cleverness of including the sequence at the beginning of the film where they explain essentially what's going to happen in the third act of the movie. And the hole's not designed to deal with that pressure. So what happens? She splits right down to the keel and the stern falls back level. 
yes, it's exposition, but it's done smartly. And I think James Cameron did it because he knows that people already know the boat's going to sink. That's not a surprise. He was hoping that you would be invested in these characters, and he was right, to such a degree that you don't want to think about or be surprised about what's going to happen to the boat. As a matter of fact, it heightens the tension knowing what's coming next. It's a form of dramatic irony wherein, because you as an audience know what's about to happen to the ship, you know that it's about to break in two, you worry that much more for the characters than if you were surprised along with them about what's happening. I think it's a really clever way to get your story across, and not surprisingly, James Cameron agrees. I mean, it is pretty cheeky that you're going to show everybody the end of the movie. Not only are people standing in line outside the movie theater saying, why am I standing in this line? I know what happens. But once they're watching the movie, you're going to show them the ending. But the sinking simulation animation, I think, was critical to an understanding of what's going on in those last few minutes. The score of the film by the late, great James Horner is also something that I think really hasn't diminished with time Mostly. I did notice this time around that there is some synth work that feels a little dated. But overall, I think the score is really beautiful and it remains haunting in many moments, perhaps even more so when you remove it from the Celine Dion song, My Heart Will Go On, which was ever present on the radio and incorporated the same melodies and themes from a lot of the score. When it stands a little bit more on its own, it doesn't remind you of the song that you're sick of and you've heard three times today. I think it works even better than it may have when Titanic was in theaters the first time. I think it's also a very beautifully shot film and credit for that goes to cinema photographer Russell Carpenter, who had previously worked with James Cameron on True Lies and would go on to do several movies. He's still a working cinematographer. He's done movies like Jobs, Ant-Man, a lot of other ones, and a very weird and diverse group of movies. But I think that the movie works and has that epic feel because it's such a beautifully composed film and beautifully shot film. It also can't be underscored enough just how important Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet are to this movie, because Titanic doesn't jump off the page. It's, it's kind of like Star Wars in that way. I think there's a reason that out of all the Oscar nominations that it got, that screenplay was not one of the categories that it was recognized in. And if you had had uh, a lack of chemistry or just two actors who didn't work together, what I would call an Anakin Padme situation, but some people would disagree with me, then this movie would not have worked. It would have been completely doomed. Cameron casting two actors like Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet, who aren't just good, but are good together is such a vital component to this film's success. I think it is as important to the success of Titanic as any visual effect could ever have been. It's not up to you to save me, Jack. You're right. Only you can do that. We will continue our look at Titanic in just a moment, but first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something out there that's interfering with your happiness or keeping you from achieving the goals that you want to achieve? I know a lot of times I'm so focused on doing everything out there that I need to do that I'm not worried about myself. Mental health is a very important thing and it's critically important that you seek out the help that you need for your specific needs. BetterHelp is a service that will assess your personal needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist online. And usually you can start your communication with these therapists in under 48 hours. Now this is not a crisis line, this is not self-help, this is professional counseling done securely online. There is a broad range of expertise that may not be available in many local areas and BetterHelp is a resource that is available worldwide. Plus, you can log in anytime and securely message your therapist 24 hours a day, seven days a week. With BetterHelp, you're going to get timely and thoughtful responses from the counselor you're matched to, and you can schedule weekly video or phone appointments. You don't have to go to waiting rooms like you do with traditional therapy. It's all done online. BetterHelp's also committed to making sure the match that you get is right for you, which means that you can change counselors anytime you want for free, and it's more affordable than traditional therapy, and financial aid is available for those who need it. BetterHelp wants to help you start living a better life today, and you can visit their website right now and read the testimonials that are posted there daily. Visit betterhelp.com movies. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states to meet the need. And there's a special offer for viewers and listeners to this show. All my movies listeners get 10% off their first month if you go to betterhelp.com movies. That's BetterHelp, 
H-E-L-P.com slash movies. And I want to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring today's show. Jack, I want you to draw me like one of your French girls. Wearing this. All right. Wearing only this. One enduring mystery about the movie Titanic for me is how in the hell it got a PG-13 rating. Because when you look at the movie as a whole, it doesn't have anything in excess, but it has just about everything that you think would have gotten it an R. Uh, nearly endless peril, very disturbing deaths and death sequences, uh, some language, including one use of the F word, and nudity. As a matter of fact, way more nudity than anyone, including 14-year-old Dan Merle, could ever have anticipated would be in a PG-13 movie. I had a deal with my mom growing up that when I turned 13, I could see whatever PG-13 movie I wanted as many times as I wanted. And I have to say that Kate Winslet's scene in Titanic where Jack is drawing her with the necklace felt like a cheat code. And yes, I know the argument is that the movie got a PG-13 because the nudity wasn't uh, sexually related. It was about artistic and drawing and all of these wonderful things. Although there was a sex scene that, while not explicit, again, when you add it to the running list, makes me very confused. But I also defy you to find me another PG-13-related movie that has as many things in it that should have gotten it an R rating as Titanic does. I found an article on Slate that was published in 2011 that quoted a study done by a couple professors who looked at MPAA ratings and then at parental ratings from a separate independent site. And they said that from 1992 to 2006, based on the different criteria, it was obvious, number one, that the MPAA judged movies from major studios far less harshly than they did independent films. And also that of every movie released from 1992 to 2006, given what was actually in the movie, that no movie that got a PG-13 deserved an R more than Titanic. The speculation in the article is that the MPAA didn't want to give Titanic an R rating because it would hurt its potential box office success. And, true story, the MPAA is made up of representatives from the major studios in Hollywood. Thus, Titanic getting an R rating would be bad for business for their employers. I would say that the MPAA has long been an outdated system that prioritizes bean counting over actual context. But that's just my opinion. The last 90 minutes of Titanic in particular remain absolute virtuoso filmmaking. And this was also the first movie to depict the breakup of the Titanic. All previous depictions of the sinking just show the Titanic sinking into the water. Here, James Cameron, based on new historical research, wanted to show the fact that the ship did, at or near the surface of the water, break into two pieces shortly before the stern made its final descent. Prior to the film's release and even after it, amongst a lot of history buffs, this was a very hotly debated topic because eyewitness accounts had differed over the years. Some people who witnessed the event said that they had seen the Titanic break. Some people who witnessed the event said it hadn't broken, it had just sunk right into the sea. But the evidence pointed towards this happening. And there's a really fascinating documentary that was made years after the release of Titanic where James Cameron assembles a group of experts to go over the forensic evidence to look at the wreckage and where it all landed and attempt to reconstruct the sinking to see just how accurate Cameron's depiction of Titanic's final minutes actually were. That's where the clean break is, and this is based on the wreck. You're saying based on? On observations from the wreck. Well, it should be, it should be actually at the promenade deck. It should be towards the top of the promenade deck or just at the, just the bottom of the boat deck, midway between the second and third funnels. The conclusion of this special was that while the film did accurately portray what happened to the ship and that it broke into two pieces uh, and eventually the bow dragged the stern down into the water. The angle of the stern before the ship broke was much less dramatic than depicted in the film or in the illustrations done by Ken Marshall. Ken, you're gonna have to repaint your paintings, buddy. I'm gonna have to reshoot my movie. Which one's easier? Painting. I'll help you paint the paintings. <laughs> Cameron, for his part, seems okay with the fact that while his portrayal may not have been 100% historically accurate, it got the basics of the situation right, and the steeper angle in the film made for a much more dramatic movie. And the things that are wrong are things that would only bother eight people in the world. Myself being one of them, but I can live with it.
I'd also like to add for those demanding 100% historical accuracy from this film that I checked the historical record and I could find no evidence of a somewhat flamboyant tycoon chasing his fiance and her artist boyfriend through the bowels of the ship as the Titanic groaned to her final death. I'm still looking at all of the different accounts, but I've yet to find any evidence of that happening. So there are definitely some historical inaccuracies in the movie Titanic. Once the ship has sunk, there is a really chilling shot, and I, and I don't mean that as some kind of a dark pun. It, it is really kind of heart-stopping, where the camera goes out and you see the scope and how many people are trapped in the water, the ship now gone below them, the boats floating nearby, but none of them will come back and help anybody. It really drives home the human cost of this disaster. And then we have the door. The infamous door that Rose climbs on, or piece of wood, whatever you want to call it, that allows her to live and Jack to die. And I have to say that when this movie came out, I didn't really have a problem with it. You know, Jack tries to get on there. It it almost flips over. He says, okay, you stay there. You be safe. Uh, And I don't really remember there being a whole lot of people that did have a problem with it until the internet got bigger and bigger. I I think that the whole thing about Rose not letting Jack on the door, it's kind of a symptom of the internet nitpicking of movies that we do, where we all go through movies with a fine-tooth comb and find little problems, whether they really exist or not. And listen, trust me, I am very well aware that I have made quite a contribution to the nitpick bank, Uh, but this is one that I've never really had a big problem with. I think the sign of a great movie is one where you have the same feeling watching it for the 20th time as you did for the first time. And when we get to the part where the boat is coming and and Rose has let Jack go down into the depths of the ocean and she runs over to get the whistle, every time I watch this movie, I'm like, come on, Rose, hurry up. The boat's leaving. You gotta gotta bring him back. I'm still rooting for her every time. I'm worried that she's not gonna make it. That's a great movie. It has that same effect on me even when I watched it just a couple days ago as it did the first time I saw it in the theater. We then have the ending of the film, and I think that it's a very sweet sentiment, the idea that Rose has finally been able to let go of her past, and she does die, an old lady warm in her bed like Jack said she would, and you see these pictures of a life lived, the fact that, you know, Jack may not have survived, but he pushed her to to living her full life, living out her every dream, and the effect that Jack had on her. I think it's a very touching way. The thing that I always think about is the idea of sentiment and sentimentality, and this is a very sentimental film. And I think that by today's standards, some people look down on that. They think of it as being corny or hokey. And, and, and there's certainly instances where it can be, particularly where it's unearned. But I like the sentiment in this film. As a matter of fact, I think that the sentiment of Titanic is one of its strongest virtues, but also perhaps a reason why it hasn't had the longevity of some other films, because it does seem a bit outmoded, or I could see how it would, by some people's standards. I don't even have a picture of him. He exists now only in my memory. While the movie comes in at a hefty 3 hours and 15 minutes, there was a lot that didn't make the final cut, and a lot of those deleted scenes are on this Blu-ray. One of those includes a scene that was in a lot of the trailers, uh, and I I think was probably in the movie till very late in the process, which is a late third-act showdown between Jack and Rose and Lovejoy, who is Cal's personal valet-slash-bodyguard. I've been looking for you, miss. There's also a bit of history that was cut, which is a disagreement between the telegraph operators on the Titanic and the telegraph operators on a nearby ship, the Californian. They got into it a little bit, and that led to the Californian turning off their telegraph for the night, meaning they did not receive the Titanic's distress signals. And reportedly, they were close enough to have actually made a huge difference, perhaps saved many lives. Just another thing, when when you look at the history of the Titanic, things happened to, you know, it seems like some sort of a dark form of fate, not the Terminator kind of dark fate, but a very dark fate because things happen in just a certain type of way that allowed the Titanic to go down the way that she did and for there to have not been as much help as there could have been. And the Californian not answering their radio was one of those things. James Cameron has said that he likes that, but he wanted to streamline the story and he didn't want to distract too much from the Jack and Rose story because he understood that that's where the heart of the audience was going to be, even if it meant sacrificing a little bit of history. Arrogant bastard. I try and warn him about the ice and he tells me to shut up. And listen to that spark, he must be right on top of us. There's also included on this Blu-ray the extended alternate ending of this movie, and it is so bad that it almost seems like a parody. 
I can say with almost 100% certainty that if this original ending had been on the movie, it would have almost ruined the entire thing. So good on you, James Cameron, for realizing that this was not the way to end the film with this long, protracted, weird standoff. Just end the movie. Don't come any closer. I'll drop it. You had it the entire time? As I mentioned earlier, Titanic had pushed its release date from summer 1997 to Christmas 1997. And when the movie hit theaters on December 19th, reviews from critics were not only ecstatic, but in many cases, a little shocked. All the publicity on yeah. this movie almost sank it before it got out of port. Yeah. It's really a good movie. Yeah. As much as critics liked the movie, audiences loved it even more. But that wasn't necessarily evident on the first weekend. Titanic did open at number one with over $28 million. It just barely edged out Tomorrow Never Dies, which was Pierce Brosnan's second James Bond movie. So it wasn't a disastrous opening, but imagine now if the highest budgeted film ever made had had an opening weekend of $28.6 million. It would be trumpeted as one of the biggest failures in Hollywood history. Titanic was truly old-fashioned filmmaking in more ways than one because it wasn't just about opening weekend. It was about this movie's performance in the weeks and months that followed that made Titanic the highest grossing film of all time. We were only number one that weekend by the tiniest margin. They practically had to do a recount. And it wasn't an enormous amount of money. And so there was nothing at that moment to indicate that Titanic would become the highest grossing film in history. Titanic's second weekend, which encompassed the three days after Christmas, saw a 20% increase in business, which is virtually unheard of if you have a movie that's already in wide release. The next weekend, business declined by just 6%. And this was the story for the next few months, where week over week, Titanic either increased in business or decreased very little and stayed at number one. I followed Titanic very closely. I was 15 years old by this point. And there was one weekend that was particularly interesting. It was the weekend of March 13th, 1998, because there was a DiCaprio versus DiCaprio face-off. Everybody knew that Titanic would probably get dethroned at some point, And the question was always, is Leo going to dethrone himself? It was his follow-up to Titanic. It was called The Man in the Iron Mask. And a lot of people thought that was going to be the movie that took Titanic out of the number one spot. As it turns out, The Man in the Iron Mask fell short by about $300,000 and Titanic would continue its box office reign for two more weeks. Titanic's run at the top of the box office ended the first week of April 1998 when it was usurped by Lost in Space, the adaptation of the old 50s TV show. But by that point, Titanic was already the highest grossing film of all time domestically. George Lucas himself sent congratulations to James Cameron after Star Wars had just previously taken the record in 1997 based off of the special edition re-release of the first film. Titanic also became the first movie to gross a billion dollars globally and became the highest grossing film worldwide until 2010 when it was passed by Avatar, directed by James Cameron. The film played number one in every country it was released in, which means that it was playing across language barriers, it was playing across societal and cultural barriers, religious barriers. One thing I like to do on the show is talk about how these movies affect my life, and Titanic, as weird as it may sound, had a very substantial effect on my life. First of all, charting is something that I love to do. Box office analysis, box office data. You see me here on this channel do it every single week, following the trends, talking about legs. How long has this movie been at the top of the box office? Where is it on the overall charts, adjusted for inflation, etc.? My obsession with all of that stuff started with Titanic. I had always been interested in the box office as a hobby. It became a sport because we all of a sudden had the highest grossing movie of all time. And week after week, it became a competition of how many more records could it top? How many more number ones could it pull off? I have followed the box office religiously almost my entire life, certainly my entire adult life. And that started in a big way with Titanic. So my obsession with box office numbers can be traced back to this 1997 James Cameron movie. 
I also saw Titanic three times in theaters, not because I was so crazy about the love story, which I thought was fine, but because this movie showed me a glimpse of what was possible. And it's really hard when I talk about seeing movies in context. It's hard to explain just what Titanic was when it came out and what it showed audiences. It showed us things that we didn't know were possible because we had seen special effects do aliens and galaxies far away and big unbelievable things. But here was a movie in Titanic that brought history to life, that brought real tangible things that existed on this planet and made us feel like we were an eyewitness to history. The combination of the visual effects, the types of visual effects, the things they did with computer graphics, with models, etc., the blending of all these techniques, it really felt like this movie was breaking new ground because it was. And it's so hard to accurately convey to people that we had never seen anything quite like this movie when it came out. And it really was spectacle. It was spectacle in the same vein of Cecil B. DeMille. It was spectacle in the way that John Landau and James Cameron talked about. There really hasn't been another movie like Titanic since Titanic came out as far as number of people and the cultural phenomenon. Yes, there have been movies that have made more money. I don't think that Avatar was the same kind of cultural phenomenon that Titanic was. I think the closest we've gotten is maybe Avengers Endgame, but this really was something that it seemed like everyone, not just in America, but everyone on the planet stopped and paid attention to. And it's really hard to find movies like this, especially because the marketplace is so crowded now and you can watch movies in so many different places. I don't know if we're going to get another film like Titanic in anyone's lifetime. Well, like most legends, RMS Titanic was epic in its proportions, the biggest liner of its time. Add a roster of the era's rich and famous, a sudden disaster at sea, and you've got the formula for a century of fascination. As expected, Titanic was nominated for a staggering number of Oscars, 14, and won 11 of them. And the Oscar goes to... Titanic! Kate Winslet and Gloria Stewart were both nominated for playing the same character of Rose, one of just a handful of times that that's happened in Academy history, but both lost, as did the movie's makeup team, who lost to Men in Black. Leonardo DiCaprio famously was shut out of the Oscar Best Actor race. And despite his earlier nomination for What's Eating Gilbert Grape, this started a narrative that ran until Leo won the award in 2015 for The Revenant of being continually disrespected by the Oscars and the Academy. This was, of course, a career high for James Cameron, but his reputation took a bit of a hit after this moment in his Best Director acceptance speech, which some people thought was maybe a little too self-serving. My heart is full to bursting, except to say, I'm the king of the world! (laughs) In retrospect, Cameron agrees that this was perhaps not the best award show choice. It's not that I regret it, because it's what I was feeling at the moment, and I said what I was feeling, but it sort of assumes that everybody there is a fan of your movie and knows the line and will celebrate the line. And that's just a step too far. The better path and the smarter path is humility, which is to just be grateful that the movie and the team are being honored. But don't quote your own film. If you ever win an Oscar, don't quote your own movie. It's hard for me to sit here and wrap up Titanic's legacy because it's such a subjective thing for me. There are some movies that I can sort of take myself out of and put myself in someone else's shoes and see how they see the film. But I can never watch Titanic and not be taken back to that moment and to those months when it first came out and when I first saw it, to the anticipation of that movie, to the fact that it delivered the Oscars. I remember sitting in a theater and watching that movie. I remember being awed by it. I remember being obsessed with it. I remember who I saw it with. Some of them are family members who have since passed on and memories of seeing the movie with them are just part of my DNA. This movie, as a film lover, is part of my DNA. I just happened to be at that age where Titanic had a massive impact on things like not just my enjoyment of movies, but my knowledge of how things worked, my knowledge of the box office. And I'm sure a lot of people disagree with me. I'm sure that there are a lot of you out there probably watching that can't forgive some of the things that I overlook, that just are not on board with Billy Zane's character, that see the seams more than I do in some of the visual effects, that think that some of the acting is hokey, or that some of the bad acting moments are a little more wonky. But I would also challenge you, 
One of the great things about movies, and this is something I've said from the very beginning of this show, is that they hit all of us differently. And a lot of it depends on when did we see these movies? How old were we? At what point in our lives did we see them? Look at the movies that you love. No matter how old you are, whether you're 15 or 55, and I promise you that you're going to find movies like Titanic, that no matter how many flaws other people say are in them, no matter how many things people say that you should be finding wrong with it, they just mean so much to you that you don't really care. That's the magic of movies. It may not be Titanic, but I guarantee you that there is a movie out there that you love just as much as I love this one. As always, I like to go over the special features on the disc that I own that I take off the shelf so that we can talk about each and every week. This version of Titanic actually has a 3D version and a 2D version, but I don't own a 3D television, so those 3D discs have gone unplayed, but the 2D version has a great HD transfer of the film, and it also has three commentaries, one from James Cameron, one from the cast and crew, one from historians that I actually didn't even get a chance to revisit as I was prepping the show. I had an abundance, an embarrassment of riches for behind-the-scenes information, so I can't really tell you about those commentaries, but you get three commentaries on that disc, which is pretty great. There are also a couple of making-of documentaries. One of them is called Reflections on Titanic, which was made back in 2012, right around the time the movie was being re-released for 3D. That follows the production process from beginning to end. I was totally, totally blown away. We didn't know what all that green screen was ultimately going to look like and what it was even for sometimes. The other is a collection of more contemporaneous behind-the-scenes footage that runs about an hour long. If we eliminated building the set and shot against a green screen, we could put those performers into the model as if they were actually in the room. As I mentioned earlier, there's also a documentary included on one of these bonus discs called Titanic The Final Word, which focuses on recreating the breakup of Titanic accurately for the very first time. So it's not like there was this equipoise, this moment of it just sitting there, even though we protracted it in the film and that's the kind of romanticized image of it. In fact, it would have just accelerated through that angle until it finally did that. It's not vastly different than, than, than what we've showed, just a little less dramatic. You also get about an hour's worth of deleted scenes, some of which I mentioned before. Most of them are interesting, especially if you're a fan of the movie, but none of them really substantially impact the movie itself. Wait a second, I wanna get something straight. You were gonna kill yourself by jumping off the Titanic? <laughs> That's great. Lewis. All you had to do was wait two days. <laughs> There's also a special narrated by James Cameron about his initial dive to the Titanic wreck to film footage for the movie. So this is the real Titanic as she lies at the bottom of the ocean. Shot in 35 millimeter film by us in 1995 when we went out there in the early days of, of making the movie as well as a video that was originally made for the crew that I think is probably a lot more appreciated by the crew. It's full of a lot of different end jokes, but it's kind of a fun little relic. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Yeah. You know what I mean? 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 You also get a collection of trailers and TV spots, as well as some of the many parodies and sketches that were made after the movie was released. Sequel. Kaboom. can't believe you said that. And that pretty much does it for this look at James Cameron's Titanic. If this is your first time watching the show, thank you so much for joining me here on my channel, youtube.com slash Movies. if you're an audio listener and you want to come check out the show here. And if you're watching and you want to subscribe to the podcast, be sure to check out the description. It's got all the information that you need. Also, please be sure to check out my friends at the Schmodown Entertainment Network. I know that the show's not on that channel anymore, but there are a lot of great things, including the Schmodown itself. I've got some big matches coming up. You also have SEN Live Daily. So many great things over on SEN, so please go and check them out. And please come back here next week. We're going to be talking about another Best Picture winner that's going to be a lot of fun to discuss. I can't wait to break all that down with you. But until then, it's time to go back on the show. Thanks for watching.